So this morning, we're going to continue our series, Dear Church, which is a look at the letters that Jesus Christ sent through the Apostle John to the seven churches of Revelation. And we study these churches. We've studied five so before, the sixth today, and we have one more to go. We study these churches because they were not just meant for the churches that they were written to. They are meant for us today. That is why at the end of each letter, he writes something like this, that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This means that every one of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, every one of us who are Christians, we need to hear the encouragements and the challenges that are given to each of these churches. And we need to ask ourselves if these truths apply to our church and to us as Christians. And it's also my prayer for those who visit and have not yet put their faith in the Lord, they're still seeking God out, that this will give them a glimpse of what a church should look like, what a follower of Christ would look like that'll draw them closer to the Lord. Now today, as we visit the sixth church, uh, we are going to be visiting the church of Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia. So you Eagles fans should be excited for this one. Uh, now the verses, they're going to be on the screen, but I always encourage you to open up or turn on your Bibles and follow along as we're in Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we will have one provided for you. We will be on page 966 today, 966. And as we talk about this, we're going to be talking about doors. We'll be talking about doors today. And so I thought it'd be fun to start out with a trivia question this morning. Does anybody tell, can anybody tell me where the largest door in the world is located? Fort Knox, wrong, but I appreciate you playing, whoever was playing. What? Anybody else? Vatican, wrong. Think Florida. No, no, not Donald Trump. <laughs> Cape Canaveral, close, close. Cape Kennedy, the vehicle assembly building in Cape Kennedy, we have a picture of it here so you can see it, is the largest door in the world. It's like 38 stories high, and it takes like 45 minutes to open or close. This is the largest door in the world. So my prayer is this question will come up for you, and the next time you're playing Trivia Pursuit, and we'll get you great victory. All right. Now, even though this is the largest door in the world, it will not compare to the open doors that God brings us in our lives, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to see here what the Lord has to say to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you, verse ten, because you have kept my word about uh, kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Verse twelve: The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God 
and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So as we exegete this passage, like always, let's look at the context of where this church was located. It's located in Philadelphia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And it was considered the gateway of the east because all roads kind of left, left through it, and they led to Rome. So there was a crossroads. Many different types of people would come traveling through Philadelphia. It was also called Little Athens because of all the many temples that it had to all the different gods. You Italians will enjoy this. Philadelphia had some of the best vineyards in the world. <laughs> Don't enjoy it too much, Dom. Because, uh, and partly because it was in a volcanic region, so rich and fertile ground. However, this was also a problem because it was right on a fault zone for, for earthquakes. And so it had to be rebuilt a couple times because of earthquakes. And it caused a lot of fear in the city because of major aftershocks that would take place years after these earthquakes, and they didn't quite have the building codes that we have today. In fact, here's a picture of some of the ruins that remains. I like to post these because I want you to remind you these are real cities that had real churches that can teach us real lessons about God's command and his faithfulness and his call on us as a church to spread the message of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So John opens this letter by reminding the church who Jesus is. In verse 7, he calls Jesus the Holy One, the True One. He says, God is holy. He is set apart from all creation. He's not like these false gods that you have set up around every corner that are worshipped in your city. He's the only God. Like we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is above all, the first and the last, the great I am. He's also referred to as the one who has the key of David. It's an interesting term, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 22, where it refers to this man named Elakim. And Elakim was a steward to Israel's King David, same guy that crushed Goliath. And because of his office, he had keys to the kingdom. He controlled access to every door, to unlock and to unlock unprecedented access like nobody else except for the king. And John uses this uh, as an illustration for the role that King Jesus plays, that he, through his death and resurrection, has the sovereign authority to determine who enters the kingdom of God, to open and to close doors. This is the reminder that he gives. Now, why did John give this description of Christ? I think it's partly because the church of Philadelphia needed to be reminded that his strength, the strength of Christ, is all that matters. You see, there was persecution, like other churches, coming from the Jewish community. In verse 9, Jesus says, I will make those the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Basically, he's talking about a group of people, and they were Jewish racially, culturally, through all their religious ceremonies, but spiritually, in their heart, where it matters, they were not. 
It's just like today, we see people who say they're a Christian, they do religious things, like they go to church, but in their hearts, they still serve themselves. Jesus may be their savior, they may say that out loud, and his Lord, but they do not live like it. And John calls this group of Jewish people a synagogue of Satan, a church of Satan, which means that even though they claim to be serving God and rooting out these Christians, they were really certain serving Satan. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us that any pressure, any persecution, any trouble that we face as Christians for the gospel, it ultimately comes from Satan. He uses people that are deceived and blinded to the truth like little pawns on a chessboard to get in our way, to cause us trouble. But at the end, he is the one moving the pieces in the hearts. Our ladies from our Thursday night Bible study, they're studying this right now. They'll know this verse well. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is the true enemy. So they're feeling all of this pressure. They're feeling all of this persecution. And I think this is why John starts with this reminder of who Jesus is. In verse 8, he, King Jesus says this. He says, you have but little, little power. Little power. But as you see in the theme of this letter, it's like Jesus is saying, but it don't matter because I am the one who opens doors. Now, what does he mean by this? Two things he could mean. Number one, it means, hey, even though you've been rejected by the Jewish community, probably your family, people you've grown up with, though you've been rejected by the culture in Philadelphia because of the lies they're probably spreading, you have an open door to the kingdom of God and nobody can take that from you for I am the one who's opened the door to you. Now, it can also mean, and it could mean both, you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Though you have little power, little influence, you will be able to share the gospel. And this is actually what an open door normally means in the New Testament. So even though they try to shut the door on you, spreading the gospel, I have opened it. Their efforts will fail. And I, and I really was thinking this as I was working on the message yesterday, that this really just impacted on me that it's important that we grasp the truth as Christians about God's power. Because I think it is our human tendency to judge our struggles in our lives and our ability to face those struggles, to overcome those struggles. It's based on our own personal evaluation of our strengths and abilities. So if we come against something and we feel knowledgeable, we feel skilled, we feel strong, we come up against that opposition with confidence. On the flip side, if we come against something where we feel weak, we feel ignorant, we're timid, we're hesitant, we're full of fear. And this is why this passage is such a good reminder that your strength or your perception of your strength or lack thereof, it's not part of the equation. God doesn't go up there and go, oh, man, all right, see Dan here. I'm going to call him to do this. Ooh, he is not good at this, this. I don't think he can cut it. 
I can't overcome this one. That's not, I think we don't ever think this out loud, but the way we look with fear at, at problems in our lives, it's almost like this is what we think God does. But God says, no, I want this done. Dan's gonna do it, period. If God opens the door, you can be the weakest. You can be the most ignorant person around. You can have no power. You can have no authority. You can have no influence. It does not matter to God. He's going to use you. And he does it time and time and time and time again in the Bible. With God, your power, your influence is not part of the equation. Whether it's sharing the gospel whether it's standing up for Christ when it's going to cost you something, whether it's serving in a ministry in the church, or, or taking up a step of faith that God is calling you to, or even for men being a spiritual leader in your home, your strengths and your weaknesses are not part of the equation when God calls you. And I, and I was wondering how many Christians would be listening to this message And they're not moving forward into something or stepping into a role that God has called them to or stepped into something God has called them to do because they're judging their situation based on how they see themselves in the mirror. You know, and even churches can do this. Churches, they, they can pass up big initiatives or, or, or big projects because they look at their lack of finances or they look at their lack of size or influence. I pray we never become that church. And I was thinking, man, can you imagine the boldness and the faith that every one of us would walk in individually and as a church if we looked at God's power more than looking at our lack of power? If we weren't looking in the mirror when tough situations come our way, but we were looking to the Lord in the heaven above. And then this doesn't, it's, this isn't just like in big things. It can be in the little small things of life. And I've had this conversation with myself before where God's like, hey, I want you to go tell this person about Jesus. And I'm like, who, some, who me? Right? And, and, I, and I felt like I don't know what to say to them, especially if it's family. Oh, they're always the toughest, at least for me. Like, and I better not. I'm going to screw it up. I've already screwed this up. But then as you learn and understand of the greatness and the power of God and his Holy Spirit, but then there's a second voice, a voice that comes in and says, wait, wait, no, no. If God opens this door, I'm going to have success. I'm going to be able to walk through it. It's not about me. It's about him. I just need to be obedient. And you know what that means is? Our, in, in our lives as Christians, it's not our job to evaluate whether we're ready for something or strong enough for something, or have the ability for something. It's just our job to find out if there's an open door, right? It's just our job, it's our job just to take the handle and just give it a little jiggle and see if it turns. That's our job. That's it. It's our job to find out if a door is unlocked because sometimes we're going to know a door is unlocked because that door will be wide open. You'll have someone come to you and they'll say, hey, can you tell me about, your Jesus? Tell me about Jesus? And you're like, yes, right? But there's other times where it's not wide open and you don't know. You're like, I think it's open. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe that was too much pizza. I don't know. And so what are you going to do? You wait for God to shine a light from heaven and like angels to soar or you, you try the door 
and you see if it's unlocked. And then if it's unlocked, which is scary sometimes, have the courage to walk through it. And I know this is very abstract, and so you have to really pray, you know, and ask the Lord to show you where in your life that this applies. And then if the door's not locked, you know what you do? Lord, I pray you unlock that door. I pray you give me an open door in this person's life. I pray you give uh, this church an open door in this area. Lord, I pray you give me an open door and blah, blah, blah. You you pray for open doors. I wonder what doors in your life do you need to see if they're unlocked for the sake of the gospel? What doors are there? What doors aren't you trying? You see, when we trust in the strength and the power of the God that we sang about earlier, we will always be successful for the gospel. Always. Always. Even if we try the door and it is locked because we tried it and we stand there and we are willing and we are praying, we have success in the Lord. Now, in America, we have this bigger is better idea of success more and more and more and, and, and greater things. Bigger things is success. Being better is success. Success, let me get it out. But with the Lord, success is going to be different sometimes. It's going to look different. In fact, sometimes we're going to be successful and it's not going to even feel like success. Because sometimes with the Lord, success is not gaining ground. That's how we usually see success. Getting the win, gaining the ground. Like when I watch the news every night, right? When, when, when Ukraine takes pays back of their land, they, oh, it's a success. They took this back. They gained a ground. But with the kingdom of God, sometimes success means not losing ground. It means standing strong. It means not crumbling, not giving in to the pressure, not giving in to the fear. And like I said, I feel like it's a different view of success than the world would give us. But I mean, look at Christ. What is he honoring the church for? For keeping his word, staying true to it, not bending on it, okay? Putting it first in their lives, not denying his name under threat of what they would lose or what would happen to them. Nope, I'm still serving Jesus. He's, they're honored for being patient. They're honored for waiting in a healthy way where they're trusting in the Lord. And they're honored for enduring what has come against it, against them. They've took it on the chin and they're still standing. I don't think this is the world's definition of success. But this is, Christ is honoring them for this. You know, and I, and I wondered when I was reading this, prior to this letter, and I realize it's a different time and it's a different culture, but I wondered prior to this letter, if the Philippian church, if, Philippian, no, no, Philadelphian church, if they felt successful, I mean, did they just feel like they were killing it for the kingdom, Right? Did they feel like they were making a difference, right? Because it doesn't sound like they were making great strides. King Jesus does not talk about the masses of people that were getting baptized, right? He doesn't talk about how they were radically changing the culture. He wasn't saying, man, you guys have so many YouTube video views, like, wow, you're killing it on social media. 
You're not raising the biggest budget. You know, you're not getting tons of kids to your VBS, but he praises them anyway. Simply because they didn't crumble under the pressure. He prayed them for staying faithful. Man, would you not love to get a letter from King Jesus that praises you for staying faithful? Man, I'd love to get that letter. Man, may we live lives worthy of that. Amen, church? I think sometimes churches can fall into this American version of success that I mentioned earlier where the bigger and better and we love stats and we love to keep stats and we can fall into this trap is, is like attendance going up, is giving going up. Do we have baptisms this year? Do we have salvations this year, right? And now, of course, we want people to fund the, the spread of the gospel. Of course, we want more people to come to church so they can hear about the gospel. We want to see people get baptized and dedicate their lives to him just like the awesome baptisms we had last week. We want to see people put their faith and trust in Christ. But I think if our success as a church is built on these, then we're taking on a role as believers that we don't have the power to fulfill. Like, we do not have the power to make people be obedient and and give their money to the church. I can't go to Mark and say, Mark, give me a $100 bill. And he just pulls it out, right? Right? And just hands it over. We don't have that power. Just checking to see if he's pulling one out just in case. (laughs) We don't have the power. I don't have the power to get the people, just to be frank, who watch from home. Not because they have health issues, right? Not because they're just learning about God. But the Christians who are just at home because they don't want to get out of bed in the morning. They don't want to be here a part of the church is what totally being the church is about. I can't force them to get in here, though I'm glad they're watching Ultimately, being part of the church is being here among the believers. I, but I can't pull them through the screen. I, I can't force people to get baptized or to put their faith in Jesus or to serve in ministry. We can't do those things. All that we can do is be faithful by pointing to them the truth of the gospel, both in word and in action. And whether people respond or not, we stay faithful. Listen, Christians, sometimes in your lives, you are going to have seasons where you are called to just endure. You are called to patiently endure. The success of the gospel around you is not going to come rolling in like other seasons in life. It is going to feel dry. It's going to be tough. And you're just called in those moments to hold firm to Jesus to resist temptation, to deny his name. You know, and I was thinking, I had a couple conversations earlier this week, and and like, I think specifically this morning about the spouses here who are Christians, but they don't have spouses who are believers. How hard that must be. How lonely that must feel. And, and, and as I've, I've spoken to them over several churches, sometimes you can feel like they're never making headway with their spouse. They're never making a difference. And I, I pray that this letter encourages them. It encourages them in, in knowing that success, you cannot always see it, but God does. I mean, every time that we endure, the Lord sees it. And it's beautiful to him. Every time we keep his word, the Lord sees it. 
Every time we don't deny or slack on his name, the Lord sees it. And I believe it's worth celebrating. It's worth giving God thanks for the strength that he gives us to endure patiently, no matter the situation for his name. Amen, church? And these times are not as tough as they can be, and sometimes we're in these situations because we got ourselves into these situations, but they're not always bad because these are the times where our faith is tested, our motives are tested. I mean, it's easy to be a Christian when everybody loves you and everybody thinks you're the best. But when the popularity goes away and the growth goes away and you're standing there and all you got to hang on to is Jesus with those around you, that's where the quality of your faith and the dedication to the one who saved you is revealed. When it's not easy, when it ain't fun, when it's gonna cost you something, are you still enduring? Are you still being faithful? Why? Because of what we started this letter with, King Jesus, the one who is greater than whatever you're going through, the one who can always open a door when it seems like no door can be opened. You know, and the beautiful thing here, the hope here, I love this, he says in verse nine, he goes, I, listen, I'm gonna open a door, even though you can't, and I'm gonna actually make your enemies come bow down to your feet. And like, this is not, and to, for them to see like, I love you, and this isn't like in the sense that they would worship uh, the Philadelphian, Philadelphian, Philadelphian church. It's in a sense of submission and recognition of who they are. And it's like Jesus is saying, the reason I'm going to open the door is because you have patiently endured. And this is a very big truth when following God. I want you to hear this clearly. The way you handle closed doors will open others. Let me say it again. The way that you handle closed doors is going to open others. People are going to see you the way that you patiently endure. They're going to see a greatness about you They're going to see your ability to overcome, and that is going to win people to Christ because of the way that we handle closed doors in our lives. We either handle it out of fear and frustration and anger, or we handle it with patient endurance, trusting in the Lord. Which one will you choose? Suffering is never for nothing in the Bible, never. God will use every ounce of suffering, spiritual, physical, emotional, whatever, suffering in your life for his glory if you are willingly to patiently endure with your eyes on him. That's why it says 1 Peter 3.15, and which is in the context of suffering, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. Why are they going to ask you for the hope that you have? Because they see it in your life. Hmm. I pray the Lord convicts us of where we need to be convicted, where we're not patiently enduring in our lives. Amen, church? Now listen, there's one other promise I want to highlight. And we're going to get all eschatological 
for a moment. I think I said that word wrong, but I hope you know what I mean. In verse 10, he gives this other promise, okay? And you end timers, get all excited. This is your time to shine. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Okay? King Jesus says, because I, you have patiently endured, I will keep you from an hour, which probably means an appointed time of trial that is coming for the whole world. Now, there's a couple views what keep from means. First, it can mean what you exactly read it in the English, that God is gonna protect them from going through this big time of trial, this big time of tribulation. They would be saved from it. I like that view. The second view is that this idea keep from is not protection from a trial, but protection through a trial. Now what's interesting is both times that John uses this same phrase in the Greek in his other writings, it always means protection through and not from. Like it is a spiritual protection, more than a physical protection. Like have you met people who have gone through very hard times in their life and some have stood strong in the gospel and in their faith and others who have fallen apart completely? He's talking about spiritual protection is the other view here. And this is consistent in, in John uh, chapter 17. It's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus prays this. He goes, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So they would be protected from spiritual attack. Now, the reason that this matters is this is one of the verses that is used as a proof text for a concept called, anybody? The rapture. Thank you, Mrs. Lynch. Now, if you grew up in the evangelical church, you know what the rapture is. This is no mystery to you. But if you didn't, I'm going to give you a quick review, okay? And, I, and this will be a quick review. So if you want to study deeper, go home. You can go down the wormhole. Um, and it is. Revelation seems to show us, that, and we're going to get into this in the new year. This is why we're just tiptoeing around it now. New year, we'll go, we'll go into it. Is that at the end of time, before the second coming of Christ, the first coming being his birth and death and resurrection, the second coming, he'll come not as a baby, but as a conquering king. He will crush evil once and for all, okay? So prior to this, Revelation reveals to us that there's this seven-year period, we think, called the tribulation. And it's a time where God is gonna just unleash all of his judgment on the world. It's just gonna be, an, it's not gonna be a fun time. Right, And we'll get into it, like I said, in the new year. And it's just going to come down and it's, it's not going to be pleasant. Right? All his judgment, all his wrath is going to be poured out. Now, there's this one view that's called the pre-trib view. Right? Pre-tribulation. Pre-tribbers would be a nickname. And it's this belief that all Christians will be spared suffering because of this rapture in heaven. This just means one day we'll be walking along and Christians will just vanish. Beam me up, Scotty. Just gone. Y'all probably read the books. Y'all seen the movie. Like, you remember the DC Talk song from 1996? I wish we'd all been ready, right? And it's based off of verses like Revelation and also 1 Thessalonians 4, which will be on the screen here. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive 
and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. And then Jesus, he also says in Luke, I tell you, on, on that night, one will, two will be in bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left behind. Now, this word rapture is not in the Bible, just like the word trinity is not in the Bible, but there's a, the concept is spelled out there, and all theologians agree that a rapture will happen, that we will be called up into the sky. The disagreement is, will this happen before this time of tribulation where everything just hits the fan or will it happen at the second coming of Christ? Now, like most evangelicals, I blew up, and I grew up Pentecostal church, you know, screaming up and down the aisles and all that stuff, right? I grew up, you, you learned about the rapture happening before the tribulation, right? And then if you go to a Christian college and you're a single male, your biggest fear in life is the rapture will happen before you can get married, Right? Some of you grew up in a Christian college, you know what I mean, right? So there's, we're one day, just boom, we're gone. And, and some people, they'll point to Thessalonians' verse that I just read, and it's one of the main verses. But personally, I think this is a misunderstanding of the context of this passage. Because I can't find, after years of just sitting there and believing this, I struggle to find and you can show me where you, you disagree with me, is I struggle finding a verse that shows and reveals a rapture to the pre-tribulation. To pre-tribulation. Now, I'm not going to go into all reasons for this. You can study it more in your time. We can talk later. But the phrase, caught up to meet, meet the Lord in the air, it's used two other times in the New Testament. And it doesn't mean to just disappear. In both of these places, it means a group of people going out to meet victors, like an, a victorious army. They go out and they meet them before they're in the city, and then they usher them in to the city. They come with them celebrating their victory. This phrase, that's the only time it's used, it's in that condition. And so I don't think that's the intention of 1 Thessalonians. I think that what will happen is that the second coming of Christ, those who are alive, those who haven't kicked the bucket yet, what they will do, I don't know what it looks like. I ain't going to try to picture it for you. That we will somehow rise to meet Christ, the conquering king, and we will usher with him as he comes in to declare victory. Nowhere in Revelation are believers ever promised immunity from physical suffering. In, done, in fact, we see the complete opposite in the New Testament. They all suffered. You look at Paul, he frankly makes the same point. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, Philippians 3, Colossians 1. And then and in Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about the prophecy of Daniel, the back half of Daniel, a bunch of end time prophecies that we haven't covered yet, well, one day, he says there are a great time of tribulation is coming and that believers will go through it and then Christ will return. And he gives the very similar imagery that we just read to 1 Thessalonians. So I just... Don't see the case for us getting rapturing before the tribulation. Now, if someone does, I don't, I don't think it matters. Here's why. Whether you believe in the rapture wherever, it doesn't change how you should live your life now. Patiently enduring while you are doing your best to promote and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that desperately needs it. The only danger I could see 
in a pre-tribulation rapture is someone getting the idea in their mind that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and, and prosperous in life in the world's understanding of those terms. Sometimes our greatest success for the kingdom of God comes through our suffering. This is what happened in the Philadelphian church. In fact, they continued to make big impacts for the gospel for centuries. Extra biblical sources talk about this. The Romans' frustrations with this church. So we don't understand the full meaning of everything that's in Revelation 3. We don't. We can guess, we can estimate, we'll figure it out one day. But I think the point that we must pull through it is the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. No one is more powerful. He is the one who opens doors and closes doors. And we must rely on that. And when he opens doors, we have the courage to walk through them. And when a door is closed, we prayerfully wait on the Lord to see where he is gonna move us next. And that why we sit there in those waiting periods, we patiently endure. And what gives us the strength to do that? Knowing that it's temporary knowing that there is a day where our name will be written in heaven, where we will be like a pillar, it says at the end of this letter, which means we will have a permanent place for all of eternity. Unless you have that as the greatest strength and joy of your life, something will always crush you. Something will always defeat you. Something will always overcome you. But if you have a joy of heaven in your life and your faith is in there and in action and in word, nothing will crush you. Nothing will come against you to defeat you. Nothing will tear you down because you have something greater always to hold on to in your life. And I pray as we hold on to that thing greater with patient endurance and courage to walk through open doors, we will have the same impact that this church and bringing many people to Jesus Christ. I pray that for your life, for my life, and for the life of Echo Lake. Amen, church?